Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Hempson's second series of Inquest podcasts. Today, we've got Elspeth Rose of Hempson's Healthcare Advisory Team, who will be joined by Jen Hovington of Hempson's Healthcare Litigation Team. Elspeth specialises in Inquest and Jess Jen specialises in clinical claims. For those of you that have listened to these podcasts before, you'll be aware that the first series took listeners through the journey of an inquest. And having responded to feedback of what you would like us to include in the second series, we're now looking at specific types of inquests and, and trying to give you some helpful background and advice related to that topic. So moving on to our third podcast in this series, Elspeth and Jen will discuss the interaction between inquests and civil proceedings. So Elspeth, um, you know, first of all, hello to you both. And um, hello, hello. And then moving on, sort of Elspeth, just to get things kick-started, what is the interplay between civil proceedings and inquest hearings? So it may seem a bit odd that we're doing this podcast with what I'm about to say, but bear with me. So inquests and civil proceedings, or in fact, criminal proceedings or any other proceedings that are not inquest they're separate so an inquest is not there to attribute fault or blame to any individual or any organization and a coroner's conclusions are findings of fact so they are not binding on any other proceedings or in any other forum however and this is where sort of the interplay comes in The coroner, obviously, as you may have heard, um, needs to determine how someone came by their their death, which I've explained in previous podcasts. And so they have to identify what caused or contributed to a person's death. So although it's not binding and the, the conclusion isn't binding on potentially a civil claim, it is certainly indicative of sort of the direction of travel and it can actually be a catalyst for civil proceedings following the the inquest conclusion. Jen is that what you found from your experience? Yeah absolutely Um, so quite a lot of the claims that I deal with did start um, as an inquest and um, it might be that that's actually um, the first time that the um, the family becomes aware of treatment that's fallen below the standard. So the coroner during the course of the inquest um, and hearing the evidence from the clinicians um, may indicate that there have been failings in the care or um, omissions um, to provide treatment and, and which alert the family to the fact that there might potentially be some negligence. Um, usually um, a family isn't represented at the inquest would you say that, that that that's the case Elspeth? I would say more often than not but there is certainly more of an appetite now that I've noticed um, and for families to get representation and I think a lot of that um, may result in a few sort of communication issues or delays with with trusts um, especially given the pandemic which puts obviously a lot of pressure on those kind of resources Um, it can then almost fire up, maybe a lack of communication can kind of fire up um, families and and what they think has happened and lead them to get representation. So I'd say on the whole, no, but I definitely see a trend on the rise. Okay, well, I mean, that might then have an impact on claims because um, when a a family is represented at an inquest, that then... um, 
you know, inevitably um, exposes them to, to legal advice. And it may be that the solicitors involved then do pick upon issues which then do result in an um, investigation of whether um, there is a civil claim against the trust. Um, so I think in terms of um, the approach to inquests, from a claims perspective, the, one of the most important things for us um, is that the witness statements that are prepared in the course of the inquest um, are as detailed as possible. Um, and it, that's obviously what you get involved in, Elspeth, um, and, and you know you meet with the clinicians, and uh, you your involvement comes um, probably quite early in in the life of um, of a potential claim. In that um, you know the inquest is relatively quick after the, the clinicians have been involved in the patient's care, um, and. Yeah. And then I suppose the events are more clear in, in the um, the clinicians' minds. Um, and that's really helps. We can locate the clinicians. Sorry to interrupt you, Jen. But um, obviously people move around. Um, and so sometimes I, I, I think, I mean, even inquests can can be sort of at least 18 months after the the death, but claims can be a lot longer, can't they? So in that time, trying to find where these clinicians are to then get an updated statement might be more difficult. Yeah, that, absolutely. So. That's that's a really key point because um, I spend quite a lot of my time trying to locate um, <laughs> clinicians, but it is really helpful if um, we have got a witness statement that was provided, and um, you know maybe when they did work at the trust um, at the time of the inquest, because. Um, I can use that even if I then don't go on to serve a formal witness statement from that particular clinician as part of a claim. So I, I think when you know witness statements are prepared for an inquest, it's really important for them to be, um, you know, as accurate as possible. And um, and they're a really important aid memoir when I'm then potentially looking at a claim because they identify who the key decision makers are, and um, you know the reasoning behind um, why treatment was provided for example and um, which you know with the passage of time you know the people's recollection and um, does fade so um yeah witness statements are really really important both for, obviously for the inquest from your perspective Elspeth but also from my perspective when dealing with a claim down the line so it's sort of starting almost front loading isn't it it's starting off from a really solid base with um good sort of research and and um having a very detailed witness statement because it may be that um a claim hasn't even been thought about at that stage but i think we have to if we sort of um prepare in case there were to be a claim then the more detailed statement at an inquest the better um what i definitely find is useful knowing uh, ahead of time so when i'm involved in the preparation for an attendance at an inquest is ascertaining whether shortfalls have occurred that fall below the requisite standard. Um, now, these sometimes can be flagged via um, a serious incident report or an HLI. Um, they're called different um, different things by different trusts, but essentially it's a, an internal investigation. And so sometimes that, that's really useful because I can see um, certain areas where there's been identified shortfalls. And from this, I can then discuss with the clinicians, um, whether as a provisional review, whether we think that these um, shortfalls have caused or contributed to um, this person's death. Now, of course, if 
if I'm being told that actually we do think that it um, had a material contribution or causal impact on the death, then it's it's sort of an early warning for me to be able to notify the trust and um, individuals and, and essentially my client um, so that they're pref- uh, prepared, I would say, for a potential claim. And the more, you know, to be um, for, forewarned is forearmed, isn't it? So um, I would say that HLIs or serious incident reports are extremely helpful for those purposes, but also um, even for clinicians to spot things. Everyone has a duty to um, spot things that could have been done better. So it's not just that um, an HLI or internal investigation is gospel and that um, nothing else can be said. If there's other things that um, you're privy to or or don't think have been really extrapolated from the HLI report, if there is one, then definitely flag this um, to your legal team when you are preparing a statement for a coroner's court. Um, the other thing to mention, which I believe um, Jen's encountered as well, but it's making sure that when you are um, writing reports for the, the coroner's office, that you actually have access to all the information that you need to prepare a thorough and accurate report. So by this, I mean um, medical records, you know, make sure that you've had a read through. This isn't a memory test. You are allowed to um, look at medical records to be able to um, refresh your memory or even ascertain what was done at what particular times. Um, I'd also say that it's important if there is a post-mortem report to ascertain, um, to try and have have sight of this as preparing a report. Um, This can actually have quite a big impact and relationship with claims. Uh, For instance, I've had a case very recently where we we sort of fell on our sword thinking that had we done X, Y, Z, it would have prevented the death. But actually, we hadn't had sight of the post-mortem report. And once we did, we realised that actually the death was sadly unavoidable and um, and I think Jen you've you've had similar instances I believe where where people haven't had access to all the information and have maybe um made concessions where they didn't need to yeah I think there's a couple of points there so I've had um some cases where I have been preparing some witness statements as in the course of a claim and the the claimant solicitor then uh, alleged that there are inconsistencies between the evidence that served um, as part of the the civil proceedings and what was said at inquest. So we've ended up getting the inquest transcripts and it makes it difficult um, if maybe all of the information wasn't available um, at the time of the inquest or, you know, if if people's recollection has changed slightly and, you know, if the evidence is slightly more different now, um, it it does create difficulties um, in defending the case. Um, I've also had cases where um, admissions have been made in in high-level investigation reports or serious incident um, investigations, where um, we've then tried to kind of row back from that when we've looked at the the, the, the claim and we've maybe got some expert evidence and we're looking at a, a standard of care in the civil proceedings um which maybe um wasn't quite considered um to the same extent when making the admissions as part of the service in, incident investigation having said that you know obviously it's important to um recognize and um, when there have been failings to acknowledge um you know that 
that there have been errors and um, you know, in line with the duty of candour to, to have a discussion with the patient or the family in respect of those issues. And, you know, I've had other cases where um, a claim has been made, we get hold of the um, serious incident investigation and we're then able to make admissions on the basis of that really quickly um, to avoid the costs of having to incur getting any expert evidence um, or, um, you know, prolonged um, investigations. And we, we then are able to, to maybe move to, to settling the claim really quickly. So, um, you know, high-level investigation reports and the, um, the evidence that is prepared for the inquest can be really important, even if we are then looking just, just to settle the claim. Um, but I think it is difficult because, um, you know, if concessions are made um, as part of the inquest, people then um, sometimes kind of hang their, um, you know, hang the, the claim on that, where it doesn't necessarily mean that there has been negligence, just that maybe something could have been done better. But like, you know, you said elsewhere, it, it, there's, there needs to be an investigation of whether it would be causative of the death. Um, and that, that's obviously what I do as part of investigating the claim. Um, so, sorry, yeah. Sorry, no, I was just thinking as you were speaking, that another thing is we, we are aware that obviously, for instance, internal investigations are not there to be um, expert reports to guide a um, civil claim and so Absolutely, there's different yeah. considerations it's there to learn lessons um, be there for improvements and so um, you know it's there are clearly going to be occasions where um, sort of there have been shortfalls identified and it's quite right that those have been identified but that from a clinical negligence perspective um, the admissions are phrased in a slightly different way or formed in a slightly different way or there are no admissions because it it doesn't reach certain thresholds and and obviously you don't have to be thinking that far ahead but I think the important point is to flag with your legal team as early as possible um, sort of your thought processes and any areas that could potentially be um, failures because then we can we can then advise appropriately and actually manage the situation even prior to the inquest um, and kind of manage that in a in a smoother way, I would say. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I'd also add as well that, um, you know, making an apology that, um, that the care someone received wasn't, you know, what they expected isn't an admission of liability. So, you know, I always recommend that um, if a clinician wants to that an inquest that they you know they apologize to the family if there have been any reasons um you know that, that the care wasn't what they what they wanted um or just pass on their condolences that's perfectly acceptable um you know and it doesn't mean that that they're completely you know admitting that that there were errors um it, it, it's just a, a compassionate thing to do agreed agreed um I think I think that's probably from a high level kind of the main points that we wanted to to pull out um, from this discussion or at least questions that I'm asked a lot and and me and Jen we work together quite a lot but from obviously different perspectives. Yeah thank you ladies I mean I found that really interesting and I certainly wasn't aware you know of, of of really the, the real sort of interrelation between and that whole idea of sort of front loading actually as well, because you don't always know 
what's going to happen at a later stage, which, um, you know, once again, back to one of those key themes of preparation, isn't it, that we've, we've touched on the whole way through. Um, while you were speaking, particularly sort of there at the end, um, one of the questions I've got is that, you know, can someone actually bring a claim against an individual clinician at any stage? Um, thanks, Jill. Um, whilst I, I, a claim is, is most often brought against the, the trust because, um, you know, in most cases, Elspeth will be um, representing the trust at the inquest that the, the care will have been provided um, whilst the patient was in hospital. And um, any any claim for, for clinical negligence will be brought against the trust because they're vicariously liable for the actions of their employees, be that, you know, the doctors, the um, the nurses, the, the midwives, um, pharmacists, etc. Um, however, um, a claim can be brought against an individual in terms of, um, you know, um, alleging that they're not fit to practice. Now, that's actually not something I deal with. We've got a separate team at Hempstons who deal with those types of cases. Um, so that would be um, in terms of, of their in their personal capacity. And um, saying that, though, Jill, I also represent um, GPs in their personal um, capacity because they have their own professional indemnity insurance. So if um, you know a GP has been involved um, in the inquest, which I, I think on occasion you might see um, a GP giving evidence at an inquest elsewhere, um, they a claim can be brought against them separately, and um, that would follow the same format as the claim against the trust, and they have, um, like I say, their own um, medical indemnity insurance, um, who um, they would contact about any such claim. Thank you. That that does help me actually, and you you raised another interesting point, sort of talking about GPs, because um, for those of you that have found this one of interest, or any of our other podcasts of interest, later in the series, actually, we will be covering. Um, inquest for GPs and, and sort of go into the sort of differences and, and that sort of area in a little bit more detail. So, so I think that's it for today. Um, thank you very much, Elspeth. Thank you very much, Jen. I found that really interesting. And once again, I hope our listeners did. Um, don't forget that we would we would really love to hear from you with any comments that you may have or any suggestions for particular areas you'd like us to cover. As usual, just simply email me at jbaker at hempsons.co.uk. Thank you. Thank you.